Well, in January of 2020, Prince Harry and his wife Meghan Markle announced somewhat shocking news that they would be stepping back from their roles as senior members of the royal family. And this was affectionately known as Megxit. And an agreement was struck that the couple would no longer be working royals, nor would they use the titles Royal Highness, and they would give up a 2.3 million pound annual salary. But I don't want you to lose any sleep this morning because at the time of their exit, Harry's personal fortune was estimated at 30 million pounds. That's not counting Markle's personal fortune. I think they're going to make it. But the whole situation posed a question to us all. What would we do given the kind of power and the choice related to that power? You know, on the one hand, being a royal sounds like a pretty nice gig, but on the other hand, various details have surfaced about what was going on behind the scenes. And you can watch all of the saga unfold on Netflix, which I don't recommend. This morning, we continue in our series in the book of Acts, and we meet a group of royals who are trying to figure out what to do with power, specifically their power. As I noted last week, Luke, the author of Acts, spends the last one-third of the story focused on the court trial of the Apostle Paul. And maybe here, if you're anything like me, it feels like this is where the story gets bogged down. I mean, what happened to the days of extended family of the church on mission together, dramatic encounters with the risen Christ, powerful teaching, people from every nation coming to know God. Now we're stuck in a perpetual courtroom, or so it seems. I think as we think like that, it, it really reveals a spiritual sweet tooth that we find so often in American Christianity. We gravitate to those parts of the Bible that make sense of our inner life with Christ instead of those exterior realities. And yet, as I read scholars like Willie James Jennings, an African-American scholar at Yale, I'm convicted that I'm reading the Bible from the top down rather than the bottom up, that I've missed the perspectives of minorities, the oppressed, and the marginalized. I'm not trying to get woke here this morning, but I felt at the beginning of this week as I began to study this passage, these sorts of questions. How much more can I say about Paul's judicial proceedings? What more needs to be said? And then the thought crossed my mind. What if I'm thinking this way because I have never been in a position of being overwhelmed by injustice? I've never been wrongly accused like this. My very life has never been at risk like Paul's. Luke is spending the last one-third of the book of Acts on Paul's trial because God's justice and his healing are central to the message of the Bible and to his message to us as human beings. So this morning, we meet a group of royals who are trying to figure out what to do with their power. We're going to unpack three things. First, the nature of power. Second, the stewardship of power. And third, the end of power. If you're taking notes again, it's three things. The nature of power, the stewardship of power, and the end of power. We begin with the nature of power. And we pick up the story from last week in Acts 24. You might remember that back in Acts 24, there was a governor named Felix who oversaw a region called Judea. 
and his rule began around 50 AD, but due to mismanagement, he was given an exit package by the Roman Emperor Nero around 60 AD, 10 years later. And so a new governor arrives on the scene here at the beginning of Acts 25. And what happens in your own organization or your own company when a new VP comes to town or a new territory manager arrives on the scene? What do they do? They begin to build relationship. They call team meetings. They conduct one-on-ones. They go to lunches. The best of leaders do a lot of listening when they first come on the job. So just after three days on the job, Festus travels from Caesarea to Jerusalem to visit the Jewish leaders at the temple. This would have been about a two or three day journey at the very least. This is a meeting between power brokers and it reveals two things. First, Jerusalem is important to Rome. And then second, Paul is important to Jerusalem. Remember, Paul has been in prison under house arrest, so to speak, for two years. But evidently, that punishment is not enough to satisfy temple leadership. Festus stays in Jerusalem about a week before agreeing to restart Paul's trial in Caesarea. The other royals that we meet in this passage are King Agrippa and Bernice. Agrippa is the governor of a province northeast of Judea, and he has arrived to congratulate Festus on his appointment. His Territory, his reign is more sizable than that of Festus. And the rule of Agrippa actually dates back to 37 BC when the Edomian family was given the territory of Judea by Julius Caesar himself. And the Edomian family was considered to be nominally Jewish and they really laid the foundation for this fragile alliance between Jerusalem and Rome. And basically what Julius Caesar was doing here was he was outsourcing the governance of the Jews to the Edomian family. We meet the son of the founder of the family back at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. You might recognize his name, Herod the Great. Herod's reign was mixed, met with mixed reviews, viewed more positively by Greeks than Jews, but his personal life was scandalous. It was marked by scandal intrigues, assassination, and such violence would go on to mark the reign of his successors. It's too long to detail the whole family story, but the son and grandson of Herod the Great would oversee the attempted murder of Jesus as an infant, the execution of John the Baptist, the crucifixion of Jesus, and the execution of the apostle James. So King Agrippa that we find here in Acts 25 is the great-grandson of Herod the Great, just a guy working in the family business. The woman by his side is his sister, Bernice. And one scholar described her as the Marilyn Monroe of the first century. She could never really settle down in a marriage, and Jews even suspiciously wondered if something romantic was going on between her and her brother, Agrippa. This is a a true National Enquirer-style royal story, power, intrigue, gossip. It's like Prince Harry and Meghan Markle have come to town. What does all this tell us about the nature of power? Well, everyone in this story held power in some way. Temple leadership, Festus, Agrippa, Bernice, even Paul the prisoner. It reminds me of what French 20th century philosopher Michel Foucault in his book, History of Sexuality, Volume 1, says about power. 
Foucault writes, power is everywhere, not because it embraces everything, but because it comes from everywhere. Power is seemingly everywhere. There's a great deal of debate today about power. Are the powerful good or bad? If the powerless move into positions of power, will that help resolve issues of injustice or not? Well, Scripture has something to tell us fundamentally about power, going all the way back to the creation story of Genesis chapter 1. Each of us have been made in the image of God. And there in Genesis chapter 1, we find God saying, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us make mankind in our image. And part of being made in the image of God is that we were designed to exert power as God exerts power. Well, what does God's use of power look like? Genesis chapter 1 goes on. It looks like that it looks like fruitfulness. It looks like multiplication. It looks like filling the earth with his glory. Another way of saying this is it looks like blessing. And this was so countercultural in the ancient Near East because particularly in that culture, only the top 1% really held power. Every other citizen was considered irrelevant. But God told Israel something special. He says, no, every single person is made in the image of God and is called to exercise power within their respective sphere of influence. The nature of power is that we share in the rule of God in the world because we have been made in his image. And that is true for each and every person. What does God's power look like? He says to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth with his glory. This is a blessed use of power. Well, that's first the nature of power, leading us secondly to the stewardship of power. During the pandemic, I learned to use a table saw, got into a bit of carpentry, you know, just walking in the footsteps of the master so to speak. I even considered doing a deep dive into the world of carpentry, started reading carpentry magazines, looking at intricate designs, and thought I need to, I need to pull back from this. Could be going down a, a obsessive path here. But I did build my wife Amanda a picnic table for Mother's Day. You know, I learned that first and foremost with a table saw, that you have to respect the power. That's what all the YouTube videos taught me, that, that it's a powerful, that blade is powerful. And it's easy to get a, a part of your shirt caught in the blade or even a finger in the blade if you don't have respect for the power. The table saw and its power can be really good when you're building stuff. It can be really bad when you slice off a finger. So power in and of itself is not good or bad. It just is what it is. The issue is my relationship to it. Well, as we look at each of the royals in this passage, they show us three ways that we can steward power. First, power can be destructive. Power can obviously be destructive. And we see this in particular with the leaders, the leaders at the temple in Jerusalem. Let me read verse one through three again. He Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the leaders of the Jews gave him a report against Paul. They appealed to him and requested, as a favor to them against Paul, to have him transferred to Jerusalem. They were, in fact, 
planning an ambush to kill him along the way. (laughs) Wow, Paul has been under house arrest for two years. We see here that these guys just can't let it go. I mean, this takes us all the way back to Acts chapter 23, when 40 of these leaders here at the temple in Jerusalem bound themselves by oath to neither eat or drink until they had killed Paul. And evidently here, we are two years later, and they're still at it. There's no forgive and forget with these guys. But isn't this the way of revenge? (laughs) Isn't this what it feels like when we can't forgive someone when we have to be right no matter the cost. And in so doing, in trying to rule over someone, we end up as the ones being ruled. Our desire for power has a way of just eating away our soul. Power can be destructive. But we also see here that power can be squandered. Ironically, power can become powerless, and we specifically see this with Festus. It becomes clear from the text that not only is Festus new on the job, but he's probably new to ruling at this level in general, and he doesn't want to mess it up. He goes and he visits the leaders in Jerusalem, and the leaders ask Paul to be brought. Now, Festus could have gone back, maybe he even did go back, and look at the report originally written by his predecessor, Felix, about the trial of Paul. And in that report, he could have seen that there really was no substantial evidence to convict Paul, and Festus could have easily just dismissed the case at this point, but he doesn't. He squanders his use of power, and he suggests that they retry the case in Caesarea, which they do in verse 6 through 9. And obviously here, Festus is really working an angle. He's using Paul's trial to try to start out on the right foot with the leader's in Jerusalem, until Paul plays an unexpected card. He appeals to Caesar himself. According to the Lex Julia, which was a legislative package passed by Julius Caesar, a defendant moving through the court system in the Roman Empire could ultimately appeal to Caesar himself or the court of Caesar. This would be like appealing to the Supreme Court in our own country. So Paul has appealed to the highest court of the land. As a result, Felix is put in an even more difficult position. Because of his political maneuvering, he allowed the case to go on. Paul has now appealed to the highest court, and Felix will be responsible for writing a report explaining the situation to the court of Caesar, and he has nothing to say. So he gets an idea. King Agrippa and his sister Bernice have come to town amidst great pomp and circumstance. And Festus shares with Agrippa what's going on with Paul. Agrippa wants to see Paul himself. He wants to hear Paul's story. And so Felix begins to to get smart here in verse 25 through 26. He explains to Agrippa, I found that he, Paul, had done nothing deserving death. And when he appealed to his imperial majesty, I decided to send him. But I have nothing definite to write to our sovereign about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. 
In a sense, Festus is telling Agrippa, I hope you'll help me with my homework. (laughs) You know, sometimes we use power in this way. We're in a position of influence, but we go back and forth. We're unwilling to make a decision. We try to place the weight of responsibility on others. We want to avoid taking risks or rocking the boat. And as a result, the power we hold is squandered. We're not doing anything necessarily destructive, but we're not also doing anything good. Well, there's a third way uh, that we find power can be used here. There's a third way of power. Power can be a blessing. You know, in many ways, Paul is a victim of injustice. Both the church and the state have failed him. And yet Paul refuses to live in his victimhood. Why? Because his response is both one of trust and action. Trust because he has been waiting on the Lord all these many years. Back in chapter 19, Paul began to sense that the Holy Spirit was ultimately leading him to Rome to make the gospel of Jesus known to those in Rome. And then in chapter 23, verse 11, this was confirmed uh, through the words of Jesus himself to Paul. Jesus told Paul, keep up your courage for just as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must bear witness for me also in Rome. So Paul has been waiting, but he's also a person of action because in the waiting, he was also looking. Paul was a Roman citizen. That was his power. And he was seeking the face of Jesus as to when exactly to play this card to ultimately appeal to Caesar. And here, the moment had arrived. And in pointing to Caesar, I think he was actually looking beyond the throne of Caesar to another throne, to the throne of Jesus. And it's because Paul has fixed his hope on the throne of Jesus, he's able to live in this blend of waiting and action. Paul avoided doing something destructive, which was common in the first century. It'd be common to to lead a rebellion or to lead an insurrection to overthrow the jackboot of Rome. But he also avoided squandering this opportunity. He wrote epistles that influenced the New Testament over these past two years. And he looked for that moment when God would fulfill his promises. And all along the way, he's been declaring the gospel to the powerful of the Roman Empire. In the end, Paul here uses his power for blessing, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth with God's glory. That finally brings us to the end of power, the end of power. And as we think about the end of power, we think about setting goals. And you set goals, you work your way backwards. The end always determines the means. Why did the leaders at the temple respond so violently? Because they were ultimately reliant upon the throne of Caesar for security. Why did Festus squander his power? because ultimately he was reliant upon Caesar for his security. So why did Paul use his power for blessing? Because he was ultimately reliant upon the throne of Christ. What is always looming in the background of the New Testament is this question, this question of kingship. Is it Caesar or is it Jesus? 
And Hacks ultimately becomes a comedy because all of these people, they think they're so important. Festus can't figure anything out. He can't make a decision. And none of these people will really ever be remembered. But the legacy of Jesus through Paul will endure. And this brings us right into the heart of the gospel. The God of the Bible isn't looking to something or someone beyond himself for security. God is wholly secure in himself. He is the source of eternal security. And therefore, he doesn't unjustly use power. Well, despite the injustice that arises from our insecurity as human beings, God responds to us with both waiting and action. In the Bible, we find a God who waits graciously and lovingly. From the first promises of redemption in Genesis to the covenants and the prophets of the Old Testament. And he can be so patient because of the grounding that is himself and the perfectly just world that is to come. But he's a God who not only waits, but he's a God who takes action. Ultimately, in the life, death, resurrection, reign, and return of Christ. And as we look to Jesus in faith, we are citizens of this king, citizens of this kingdom. Tim Keller describes it this way in an essay entitled Justice in the Bible. By the way, uh, we'll be looking at the topic of justice at Theology on Tap tonight, 7 p.m., Belmont Station, just a shameless plug right here in the middle of the sermon. But Keller, Keller says this summarily. He says, you cannot do justice without recognizing how power has been used to exploit and abuse. But you also cannot do justice without exerting power yourself. The gospel shows us a savior who does indeed exercise authority over us, but who uses that authority and power only to serve us and who was willing to lose it and suffer in order to save us. Christians have intellectual and heart resources to use power in a way that does not exploit. We must never stop struggling to walk in our Savior's steps. Remember that. We must never stop struggling to walk in our Savior's steps. That's what it looks like to figure out how to use power. You know, on Friday night... I was at the grocery store, and I'm I'm standing waiting for um, one of the stations to open up in the in the self checkout line, and a guy has a basket full of groceries. He rings it all up, and then he just proceeds to walk away without paying for any of his groceries. And one of the workers there, this woman, um, was obviously put in a vulnerable position. And she tried to say something to the guy, but the guy just walked out. And I was just astonished as to what to do about this or how to respond to this in real time. Um, And my heart instantly went out um, for this employee. and, And I asked her, I said, how are you supposed to deal with these things? And she said, this guy comes in every every day and steals something. And I can't do anything about it or else I'll lose my job. And we face a situation of injustice like that. And in reflection, I have the choice in that moment to use my power uh, in a destructive way, to squander it, or to somehow figure out how it could be used 
as a blessing. I was in a meeting of football coaches this week and an issue of racial justice surfaced and greatly disrupted the meeting. Right then and there, would power become destructive? Would it be squandered or could it be turned into a blessing? I was running one morning through my neighborhood. I passed someone in the neighborhood who has hurt me in the past. I was actually caught off guard. But in walking away, I considered that in that moment, power could be used in a destructive way. It could be squandered or it could be turned into a blessing. And as you look to the week ahead, I want you to know from Scripture, you are a royal You have been made in the image of God and therefore you have been imbued with the power of God. And you will find yourself in various situations this week, in your job, in your neighborhood, as a parent, as a spouse, in the life of the church. And in these moments, power can be destructive, it can be squandered, or it can become a blessing. What will you choose? Let me pray for us. O God, our King, by the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the first day of the week, you conquered sin, put death to flight, and gave us the hope of everlasting life. Redeem all our days by this victory. Forgive our sins, banish our fears, make us bold to praise you and to do your will, and steal us to wait for the consummation of your kingdom on the last great day. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.